In fairness, that's what happened. The rich people started burying themselves in theft-proof vaults, which meant that only poor people got their graves robbed and their cadavers sold to the medical community. That becomes relevant later on. That's my father, Will Parsons. He's a full-time farmer, but not very long ago, he taught traditional music history at Moorhead State University. Here they are uh, doing autopsies on dead people, learning everything about everything, what the heart looks like, how big it is relative to the liver, um, how, you know, the lungs, everything. They finally got brave enough to open up people and see what they look like inside. He's talking about a radio show that he heard on the drive to his university, situated in the mountainous region of eastern Kentucky. And uh, I want to tell you a story now about just how wrong people can be. It begins with a mystery. Sudden infant death syndrome. Perfectly healthy child goes to sleep and dies during the night. It's about the worst thing that can happen to a parent. And each year, it does happen about 7,000 times. Still, no one knows why. Oh, and by the way, that was Robert Sapolsky. He's a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. And uh, Sapolsky tells this story of the moment SIDS was diagnosed for the first time. Or at least what you're hearing there is NPR's Radio Lab doing a story on how early medical schools incorrectly determined the normal range of size of the human thymus, eventually leading to the misdiagnosis of SIDS and the subsequent death of an approximate 20 to 30,000 people. In any case, normally this little organ is about the size of a tiny tube of toothpaste, like the tribal kind. Uh-huh. But in these sit skids, it was huge, humongous, enormous, twice the size. Exactly. And since the thymus is dangerously close to the windpipe, doctors came up with a hypothesis. A perfectly reasonable hypothesis. Which was that maybe if you're one of these babies with an enlarged thymus and you're asleep and somehow you roll over wrong, uh-huh. Well, that gland might press down on your trachea and suffocate you during the night. Oh. So, ding, 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 medical mystery solved. Really? No. It's almost the same story that my father told me on the front porch of our rural Kentucky home, but with one important difference, the conclusion. Because poor people couldn't afford to have those kind of autopsies. But the wealthy people's infants who died of SIDS were autopsied, and it was discovered that they had an enlarged thymus gland. Uh, So, what are you going to do about it? Well, here's the hot, modern, new scientific um, breakthrough treatment. You, You irradiate. Irradiate their throats. Irradiate their throats to shrink their thymus gland. Zap the child's throat with trillions of radioactive particles. Really? Literally? You betcha. So, if you could afford to, and you were a responsible parent, it was taboo not to take your infant in and have its thymus gland treated with radiation. And of course, what happened 20, 30 years later? They all died of cancer. Because, of course, the radiation gave him cancer. Decades later, you've killed 20 to 30,000 people with thyroid cancer. 20, 30,000 deaths, that's a, that's a real number. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly big one. And so the scientific community had made a terrible error. 
but maybe not exactly the one you're thinking of. This was, you know, a couple of decades into radiation having been discovered. Isotopes are performing near miracles of diagnosis and discovery. People were just tossing around radiation all over the place. Iodine-131. Radioactive sodium. Radar. Gamma rays. Neutrons. And this was a period with Madame Curie, like, dipping her arm into vats of uranium. Radioactivity is harmless. And dying soon afterward from cancer. Moral of the story, science doesn't get it always right. Except that's not the moral of the story. This was shortly after the Revolutionary War. Right about this time, says Sobolski, the first med schools started to pop up in America, and a supply and demand issue came into effect. Because with these med schools came med students, medical students who needed to learn about anatomy, and of course, in order to do that, they needed bodies. You know, to dissect. This produced this whole occupation. You could be a resurrectionist. And they would go out and dig up bodies and sell them to the anatomists at the medical schools. And that brings us back. Um, in fairness, that's what happened. The rich people started burying themselves in theft-proof vaults, which meant that only poor people got their graves robbed and their cadavers sold to the medical community. The resurrectionists had to go where the bodies were easiest to get, which meant, you know, avoiding the fancy graveyards. If you were wealthy, you could have yourself buried in what was called a patent coffin, hmm? which was a triple-layer coffin, which was meant to be resurrectionist-proof. But if you were not wealthy, no fancy coffin for you. You'd probably just be buried in a sack in some pauper's field just a few inches under the soil very accessible for these resurrectionists. And so for decades, medical schools studied the bodies primarily of people from a lower socioeconomic class. As a result of all of this hubbub yeah. over uh, grave robbing, country after country throughout Europe decided, well, let's standardize how science gets its cadavers. Forget all this grave robbing. So they passed laws. Which formalized anyone who died in a poorhouse uh, their body would be turned over to the anatomists. This was like the cadaver version of direct deposit. Okay, so grave robbing was gone, but now all the bodies used by medicine, and not just some, but nearly all, now came from the poor. And when they studied the bodies of victims of sudden infant death syndrome and discovered what they thought was an enlarged thymus gland, it was in fact not that at all. Because in reality, what they had discovered was a normal, natural-sized thymus gland. For the first time in medical science history, they were looking at actual normal thymus glands in the infants that they were studying because they were studying the thymus gland of an infant from the wealthy class. And heretofore, they'd been studying thymus glands from poor people. And the thymus glands in poor people, under the stress of poverty, had shrunk. And now, Robert, now we come back to the case of the mysteriously enlarged thymus. Because if you're poor, mm -hmm. you're... You're worried about your job. You're worried about feeding your family. You're worried about the bills. In other words, you are stressed out. And during chronic stress, your immune system goes down the tubes. And since the thymus is part of the immune system... If you are chronically stressed, the thymus gland shrinks. Wow. What the, what the connection that I made that turns it into the Poinsettia sermon is that poor people are under so much stress that they literally have an observable um, bio physiological difference uh, that causes them to die, really. 
They know they're going to die. They're going to, poor people die by the droves. Wealthy people do not. Why are they studying poor people? Because that's the people who die. Dad's talking about the Poinsettia Lecture, a lecture that he developed based on this story and delivered to traditional music history classes at Moorhead State University. At the same time, I was teaching, like, doing lectures on all these magnificent musicians in American history. And the one thing that is almost universally common is that they're from extreme poverty. There's some rare exceptions. At this point, we've moved past the original story, because Radio Lab's story ends with the terrifying threat of science's great fallibility. But what he's talking about here is a totally different perspective. Louis Armstrong, Johnny Cash, whoever you want to name, you could go on, the list could go on and on forever. It's overwhelming how many of the American musical heroes came from abject poverty. And that's because they're going to die. They have to do it as soon as they can. They can't afford to wait around. By do it, you mean? They have to, they have to reproduce. Okay, so people who are born into poverty have a physical deficiency that sends the signal to the brain that they might die. And that makes them produce art? Um, he doesn't know that. Consciously. Consciously. But he's displaying. He's doing all the things that there is to do to attract a mate, and then another mate, and then another mate, because that is his job. And what does this have to do with poinsettias? That's what blooming is. The way to make a poinsettia bloom is to put it in the dark for a period of time. I don't know what period of time. Seven days, three days, 15 days, 26 days. Um, and if you put it in the dark, it'll bloom. Why does it bloom? It won't bloom because it thinks it's going to die. And it's got to reproduce now or never. In other words, poor people are flowers under the stress of imminent death. Dad makes the argument that this results in a sort of bloom in the form of gray art. Our shrunken thymus gland is merely the evidence that tells us that, yes, poor people are indeed under this stress, even from birth. I grew some tomato plants one year that I babied with tender love and care and fed the maximum amount of food to that them plants could possibly want, and they responded with massive, vigorous, beautiful growth. They were huge. They were beautiful. They never had a single tomato because they were too wealthy. Louis Armstrong would not have been Louis Armstrong if he had a normal-sized thymus gland. You're listening to Dig a Little Deeper, the podcast about the hidden meanings in some of the greatest songs in American traditional music and beyond. Disclaimer, I do not own or claim to own any of the music in this episode. Any use of the recordings or lyrics of the song or songs featured herein is protected under fair use for the purposes of education and criticism. Please take a moment to listen to the song for this episode, Over Yonder in the Graveyard by Olabel Reed.
folks in the mountainous region of Appalachia needed to reproduce both in order to assure their bloodline and to have enough hands to do work on the farm. If you're unsure about poor people feeling a more urgent need to reproduce, keep in mind that Olabel was the fourth child out of 13. She was born into a poor but very musical family, which lends even more support to the poinsettia theory. Let's listen to the first verse again. Already you can hear the macabre tone of the song. Like many songs in Appalachian folk music, Over Yonder in the Graveyard deals with the harsh reality of life and death in the region. Notice also that the narrator refers to the graveyard, not a graveyard. Most likely, this would have been a family cemetery or one associated with the family's local church. It was a very personal place for the people who lived there, and yet the wild, wild flowers grow there. This has two implications. One, that the flowers grow in fertile soil. Or two, that this cemetery is not particularly well maintained. Even if we didn't know anything about Olabel Reed, this first verse could tell us everything we need to know about her socioeconomic status. That the subject matter is death 
already indicates that we're dealing with someone from an impoverished background. But the biggest clue is that the narrator in the story and their community cannot afford to maintain such a sacred place, even after the narrator's lover is buried there. Fairer than the sweetest flowers, restless as the wildest wind, born with a love deep as the ocean. This was the girl that I did win. Now this verse may simply be the musings of infatuation that the narrator has for their lost love, but since songs are generally written with a great deal more intentionality, I would argue that there's something more there. Restless as the wildest wind, born with a love deep as the ocean. This sounds like the description of a person with great exuberance and zeal for life. It's a stark contrast to the death that permeates the rest of the song and may also be evidence of the blooming that occurs in people who are born so close to death. I left her there back in the mountain To see the world riches to gain Oh, when I return, oh, earthly treasure Could ease his heart so full of pain in this verse, even the narrator seems all too aware of life's most significant priorities. After leaving home in search of some kind of fortune, they lose their opportunity to love. Whether Olabel realized it or not, though I suspect she was a great deal more aware than most, she's talking about the plight of impoverished people. Stay home and build a family, knowing that your children may not have the resources to be cared for and could die before maturing, or leave to seek a better life only to have those you left behind die in your absence. You need no more than this to understand the song. That a person of wealth would not likely have had to make this incredibly difficult decision. And even if they had left home to seek their fortune, they were much more self-assured, knowing that their loved ones might be cared for while they were away. They're so high up on that mountain beneath that the girl that I'd return to marry, so still among the flowers that lay. Beneath that little mound of clay, it's almost as if the deceased in the song could have been, and most likely would have been, one of those poor people buried in a cloth sack just a few inches beneath the soil, waiting for cruelty to strike in the name of science. They may well have cut her open and discovered her thymus, perfectly normal and in keeping with the other subjects they had studied, waiting for the part that simple measurement would play in the death of thousands of innocent people who would have their glands irradiated in later years. So still among the flowers they lay, in contrast to the restless, wildest wind that they had come to embody in life, a poinsettia that bloomed, withered, and died in the dark room of poverty. I'll go and I will wonder Lay aside my earthly gain And I'll not end With a man with riches Undone and sorrow I'll remain Undone and sorrow
Poor people have been taken advantage of by a wealthier ruling class for as long as the concept of wealth has existed. But the cautionary tale of the thymus gland is not only for the poor. It's not a story that asks us to bury bodies deeper or more securely. It's not even a story about the dangers of irradiation and the fallible nature of scientific development. It's the story of the poinsettia and the blooming lives of those who go undetected in a sea of others like them, poor and desperate to love and to live life to the fullest. Olabel's song about life, love, and loss shows a level of comfort with death, as though it was your neighbor who you always wave at politely and hope never comes to visit. It also seems like a rebuke of the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality that many seem to have about poverty. If only it were so easy. Lay aside my earthly game And I'll not end With a man with riches Undone and sorrow I'll remain Undone and sorrow I'll remain You've been listening to Dig a Little Deeper, a podcast about the hidden meanings in some of the greatest songs in American music and beyond. This podcast is made possible by the Carter County Public Library and listeners like you, and by the Olive Hill Chamber of Commerce, the leading force in Olive Hill's economic development. Proprietors of the historic Olive Hill Train Depot open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you, and join us next time for Dig a Little Deeper.